I love mysteries. I love legends. I love uncovering. I, I'm a researcher. I tolerate my writing, and I hope you do too. But but it's really the research that spurs me on. And whether it's the legend of Price's, the left wing of Price's army coming to Montana in the 1860s during the Civil War or right after, or whether it's did Frank and Jesse James really come to Montana Territory, I like to tackle those, and I've done that in my recent books. I also look for neglected history, and when I moved back to Montana after my long Navy career, it was pretty glaring to me that African Americans had never been written into our history, and no, they were never a huge proportion of the population. But I knew there'd be exciting stories and things to, to tell their history as well. Women's history is almost that neglected at the point of, say, in the early 2000s when I got back to Montana, and several others. I, I will say that African-American history today versus 15 years ago is under control. It's being researched, it's being written about. The Montana Historical Society's Black uh, Heritage Resources website is a gem, whether you're a student or a researcher or a teacher. Lesson plans are there and so on. So uh, I, I applaud that whole effort and, and the other efforts that have gone on in African-American history. It's really great to see. But there are other areas, uh, and of course I, I've also got to give credit to Martha Cole and that whole first online effort with Montana Women's History, and that grew into a wonderful book of Beyond School Marms and Madams, and my little one contribution to that I'm really proud of. It's, it's just such a great, diverse collection on Montana women that if you've not heard about that book, seek it out. Rod's got it over there. And when was the last time you saw a film on Thomas Francis Marr? I mean, we all talk about him. He's probably the greatest legend in, in Montana history, uh, riding off in, down the bluffs of Fort Benton and that night vanishing into the Missouri River. When did you see a film on him? Where are the film writers? Well, there is one, and I can tell you that there is a documentary coming out, I think, this winter. So collaboration of the Irish Institute at the University of Montana and an Irish filmmaker, and they've been going around to Bannock, Virginia City, Fort Benton, Helena, and so on, gathering footage and interviews with knowledgeable people on that exciting Irish revolutionary who made such a, a, a big impact in his short period in Montana territory. So there will be a documentary on him. But the no, most neglected war, uh, when's the last time you read a book on Montana and World War One? There aren't any, and that's why, uh, as of this week, my book, uh, which is uh, World War One Montana, the Treasure State Prepared, came out. And I, again, did it because I wanted to fill a void, like the trilogy I did on Montanans and the Civil War, when people were telling me, well, Civil War didn't mean anything to Montana, we didn't have any big battles here, and so on, and yet I knew that wasn't the answer. 
and the trio, trio of books that I brought out on that, I think, resonated with a lot of people around Montana, and I had great fun going around the state and having people come up with diaries, photos, uh, and, and saying, you know, uh, as, as one young woman did in, in Missoula, Harriet Lewis, who I had in my uh, Montana Territory in the Civil War as a young teacher hired by the Freedmen's Bureau to go down to the South as the slaves were freed and came with nothing. They had no jobs, they had no clothes, they had no education, they had nothing. So what do you do with four million freed slaves? Well, you create a Freedmen's Bureau and you try to do the best you can. And Harriet Lewis, this young Illinois teacher, went down to Kodak, occupied Mississippi to do what she could. Great stories were out there and they were just waiting to be discovered. And this young woman that came up was a direct descendant. And she said, I didn't know about my great-great-grandmother, but I've got the diary of her husband. Well, I'd found Harriet's letters in the Montana State University Library in the special collection. And I was able to write words directly from Harriet Lewis from occupied Mississippi as she was facing tense, difficult, environment among the white southerners in that uh, part of, of Mississippi that was occupied by the Union Army. But we're here to talk about World War One, and I guess um, this is the book. It's, it's an attempt with a theme, uh, the theme being that this was a war of opportunity for many, it was trouble for some, and change for all. And it would have profound effect on Montanans of every age and every station. <clears throat> With that theme, I, I wanted to take the reader through what it was to go through the war with no army and go into a European war for the first time in American history and mobilize a nation overnight to join countries, France, Britain, and Germany especially, that had been tooth and nail at war. Their casualties in a single big battle were larger than the combination of our National Guard and standing army of about 300,000. They'd have more casualties in a single big battle. How do we go to war in a situation like that? So the first priority to me was to take you, the reader, through how we went into the war, how we mobilized and, and got things organized at the local level, the state level, national level, and oh, by the way, what was going on internationally, because this wasn't just a war on the, on the central, on the uh, western front in France. There were railroaders from the Great Northern, like Ed Shields, a pretty famous uh, conductor on the Great Northern Line, in Montana, along with uh, dozens of other Montanans that had worked for the railroad, that went over to Siberia in 1917. And they went because the, the Russians had had the first, the February Revolution, when they overthrew the Tsar, and so on. So um, this was a worldwide war. The Marines were spread in uh, like 48 different countries. Uh, with major contingents in, of Army and, and uh, Marines in various locations. I don't figure out where the arrows are. So that's the book. 
opportunity for Mary, uh, for many, uh, many being ethnic groups, women, and so on. Uh, this this began things that exploded in World War II. Uh, whether it's, and I'll mention later, uh, whether it's code talking or whether it's uh, the Navy in the World War II had the waves. Well, they had nothing comparable at the beginning of World War One. Both the Navy and the Army had small numbers of women nurses, but the Navy opened their administrative rate, which was called yeoman, and and so the Navy started recruiting women into the yeoman F for female rate, and of course that had to be uh, pronounced as yeomanettes by everyone. Well, this young lady, Bernice Tongate, was drawn for this poster, which was one of the most iconic recruiting posters in World War I, at the same day as she had enlisted in the Navy, and of course nobody knew that, they just were attracted by the poster. About 216 Montana women served as, as nurses, with at least 169 active with the Army. And, and the idea I had was to identify Montanans' participation in each aspect of the war, local, national, international. Of these women, excuse me, of these women, uh, only the Navy contingent of nurses, uh, there were 293 that served overseas, but of that only one was a Montana, and it was this Alice Cannon. Alice Cannon went relatively early in the war over to Leith, Scotland, near Edinburgh, and it was a, the major U.S. naval hospital, and she wrote letters that Gary gave some awfully good insight into both what was happening in the hospital, and that's included in this book, and also um, events that happened at the end of the war. And, and those events included things like being on an American battleship when the German fleet was sailed in to be sunk at the end of the war to be no longer a threat. So Alice Cannon was one of those nurses that left a good record. Many did not. Uh, you could find their service, but you couldn't find a lot about them. Others like uh, young uh, Virginia Flanagan, uh, who had grown up in Fort Benton, but uh, had been a nurse in Great Falls, and then in California, she went over with an army uh, hospital unit and set up in France part of the time, <coughs> close to the front lines part of the time, uh, in a big hospital in Paris. She left a diary, so again, you know, finding sources, because I wanted you to be able to read <coughs> the words of the participants wherever I could find them. Navy nurses went on transport ships and the second nurse I'll mention uh, briefly is, is one of two Native American nurses that served from Montana. Uh, Regina McIntyre was Salish Kootenai, and she, she's 
you know, a known enrolled member of the uh, Salish Kootenai tribe and served in France. But I found Louise Lafournaise, who was Métis, or actually today she'd be a member of the Little Shell tribe. In those days, in 1917, that tribe wasn't recognized, in it, and that Little Shell tribe still isn't federally recognized, although the House of Representatives just passed legislation federally recognizing and we're waiting for the Senate to take action because that was one of the landless bands that that moved west from Minnesota and has had a really rough time uh, along with the Chippewa Cree roaming Métis between the Canadian. Uh, now this young Louise was born in Saskatchewan in, in many ways, her life was very much like the Métis uh, because she moved uh, with her family down to Opheim, and so she actually, uh, I mean, she did amazing things for a young uh, Native American woman from uh, a landless tribe uh, in terms of getting her nursing uh, certification. She also filed for a homestead in 1915 and proved it up in 1918. Uh, and how she juggled all this because at the same time she was working in a series of hospitals in Great Falls, Fort Benton, and finally for several years in Haver. She went into the war and uh, was very close to the front lines and uh, in fact was uh, awarded uh, several, uh, several awards and decorations for her service, especially during the Battle of San Mahal, which was in uh, September of uh, 1918, and it was one of the first big battle with American troops in it. This is uh, Regina McIntyre on the right with, with her uncle, that's the Salish Kootenai uh, nurse. I've done quite a bit of research on Native American warriors. I've just really begun that um, it's it's a tough it's a tough problem. Uh, I've not found anyone that's assembled a, a strong list of of native warriors. Partly because so many, and I know the Blackfeet best because I live up in Blackfeet country, and so many were descendants of of white fur traders or early settlers and they carried names like Kennerly or Weatherwax and all the Evans and you know all those white guy names and and yet when they registered for the army those mixed race natives were all registered as white so finding them is is a real uh, sleuthing job that I'm just getting going on. I've found about a hundred and well in fact let's go on to uh, several graphics related to the Native Americans. Um, it, it uh, you know, think, this is 1917. The last big battle in Montana really was the Nez Perce War of 77, so we're talking, you know, maybe a generation and a half after the last frontier war battles with the Native Americans, and yet here, natives that were on reservations were being asked to go into the service and fight, and many of them did. And when you think about the, the sequence, uh, one fascinating uh, uh, fact I've found is that uh, this very obscure 
lineage, Red Fox St. James, who appears to have been part Blackfoot, um, was in New York, invited by the Secretary of War, Newton Baker, to join him in a speech to many thousands in New York on the 4th of July of 1917. Red Fox appealed to Secretary Baker and the country to accept, and well, in his words, he said, my own people, the North American Indian, has heard the call to arms, but you will not let us answer. Do you need us in this terrible conflict? Are we to remain inactive when 50,000 Indians are ready to serve as cavalry? From all over the West, we stand ready to spring to saddle. We stand ready to protect 1,400 miles of the border between the United States and Mexico. And oh, by the way, there were several American army regiments on that border that, of course, could have been freed up if they'd accepted his offer, but anyway. 50,000 men who know a horse as no white man ever knew a horse. 50,000 men who can live where no white man has ever lived. 50,000 Indians who, when their hearts are in a cause, are, are as our hearts are in this cause, would die for it as for no other nation. Mr. Secretary, call us to arms. Let us guard and fight our country. Anyway, this was the speech that St. James was giving to this huge crowd in New York. Secretary uh, Baker quietly got the word to him that uh, responded to him by advising that the American Indians should come into the Army in the regular fashion. Well, that was a confusing mess because in 1917, the Army had put out regulations that you, if you were a, quote, full-blood American Indian, you had to come in into the colored regiments. We had a segregated Army, so these African-American regiments were the only place that full-blooded American Indians could serve, and, and the uh, mixed race could move in to uh, the white regiment. Well, by, by the end of 1917, they backed off that, and large numbers then of uh, natives came in. Uh, Montana had about 12,000 at the time. Uh, I still don't know how many served for Montana, but my count at this point is 124 Army, three Navy, and, and two Marines plus the two nurses. I don't believe there were more than the two nurses, but I believe there are probably many more of the others. About 50% of these uh, went overseas. And what did, you know, what was the result of it? Uh, why, why did they go in and what happened? I think I'm, I'm really uh, in debt to uh, Dr. Jeff Sanders and Rene Charette from MSU Billings for some very, in wise words they shared, uh, but maintaining the warrior tradition. Well, how did you maintain it when you lived on the reservation and couldn't go off reservation on horse raids and, you know, the traditional way of, of achieving manhood? Well, you could in the U.S. Army, and that was a big factor. You could also escape the hunger and problems that was pretty rampant on the reservation in the 19-teens some great benefits. It trained a whole new generation of young native leaders. They got experience in the war. They got confidence from, uh, they fought extremely well. In fact, so, so well that they caught the fancy of the American press and, 
and there were stories after stories about the, the feats of these native warriors in France. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence from the Germans that the native warriors were intimidating the Germans. The first co-talkers, they weren't Montana natives, but they were Choctaw and some of the other tribes, especially from Oklahoma. Oklahoma, by the way, had one-third of the nation's natives at the time, about 110,000 of the 300,000. And of course, uh, the, the great leaders like Chief Plenik, who emerged as a national native leader, so much so that in 1921, when the uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier was unveiled, he was, he was selected to represent the Indian nations around the country. And there's a strong belief that, that their great performance was a contribution to the uh, citizenship that was granted to all natives in 1924, finally. And I should say that the strong performance of the American women in all of the activities, whether they were in the service or whether they were over there with the Red Cross or the YWCA, YMCA, whatever reason they were over there, they performed extremely well and that was a great shot in the arm for the suffragette movement and helped gain suffrage for women. There were so many natives, especially Métis from around Lewistown in this 148th field artillery, they were putting postcards out of Fergus County, 148th and, and so on. Just got to mention briefly the Tuscania. There's a lot about it in my book. It was the first big loss of life for Americans in World War I. Uh, over 2,000 soldiers were aboard the Tuscania a liner that was going over to France in early February 1918. And over 100 American or Montanans were aboard. Um, Ten of those perished and were not recovered. About 90 of them survived and were, were picked up. So the story of the Tuscania was so powerful that in the aftermath of the war, a little country school south of Big Sandy was named Tuscania for no other reason than the, the impact that uh, sinking had made. Jerome Kennerly, a Native American uh, part uh, Blackfoot, uh, was on board and he was saved. Jeanette Rankin, uh, I wanted to know, you know, I knew she voted against the war, but I knew there had to be much more to her story, and there isn't a whole lot in Norma Smith's excellent biography about her first term in Congress and so on. I found a lot of what she did and contributed, and it's in, in the book. The remount station, and that brings in Charlie Russell and his great painting, uh, Smoking Them Out. The back cover of the book is Smoking Them Out. It was sent by Charlie to the remount station at Camp Lewis where the draftees from Montana and the Northwest States went. Hanging over the fireplace is smoking them out at the remount station. Captain Jackson that manned the, or, or operated the remount station, commanded it, was a friend of Charlie's. Charlie sent this great letter and that painting off to be a, a shot in the arm for the draftees from the cowboy country to uh, to look at and get inspiration from. After the war, the French sent 
<laughs> these little box cars, they, it's really tiny, but it was designed to hold 40 men or eight horses. And there's this, at the end of the war, they sent one to each state, and ours is at the Montana Military Museum at Fort uh, William Henry Harrison. And I'll wrap up with, uh, with a very brief mention of all the aftermath of the war and uh, all the, uh, uh, it was a short war, but it was a bloody, vicious war. And what happened in the country in terms of suppression of free speech and the labor discontent in, in Butte and the hanging of Frank Little, all of these things are in my book and I don't have time to give them justice today. But these uh, Biscayne statues stand today in Columbia Falls at the Montana Veterans Home and in Fort Benton. Missoula's got a, a really fine statue, but it's not a Viscesne uh, Spirit of American statue. So with that and the uh, urging on my part that uh, from now until uh, November 11th, 11th hour, 11th day, 11th month, of 1918 and now 100 years later, there's going to be a lot of World War One focused talks and things in Helena and Bozeman and Missoula, I think probably here in Billings and so on, participate in and learn more about the war. It's, it's too important for us not to uh, both pay attention to and learn lessons from. Thank you all very much.